Hello, I'm Linda Huey, and this is Meet the Doctors, the show that lets you hear what doctors have to say about their lives, their work, their passions, and what they foresee for the future. Today's guest is Dr. Amir Vukshur, who is both a neurosurgeon and spine surgeon using many new technological devices. This episode of Meet the Doctors is brought to you by Complete PT Pool and Land Physical Therapy. Whether you're trying to prevent knee surgery or recovering from shoulder, hip, or back pain, Complete PT offers you the most advanced pool therapy in combination with traditional land therapy. You don't need to know how to swim or even get your hair wet. The 92-degree saltwater pool soothes joints and muscles and helps reduce pain immediately. Visit CompletePT.com. That's CompletePT.com. Now let's meet Dr. Vukshur. We're here today with Dr. Amir Vukshur, neurosurgeon and chief of spine surgery at Providence St. John's in Santa Monica. Welcome to Meet the Doctors. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. You know, I met you casually at an event in the marina some years ago, but I know you on Instagram as a surfer and triathlete. Most of all, you're a cutting-edge neurosurgeon and spine surgeon, so... Anyway, I'm impressed. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. I've I've, I've certainly uh, uh, had many patients with you that just have felt great uh, being under your your care at Complete PT, and uh, look forward to the opportunity to hang out and chat a bit. Yeah, yeah. So the, I want to go back to the beginning. It's always so interesting to me to see where were you born and raised. So I was actually born in Tehran, Iran. Uh huh. And uh, the the country underwent a revolution in 1979, right? And I was nine years old, and really saw the kind of the emotional upheaval. Um, and thankfully, my my mom was my mother was always so even keeled, and she could kind of like um, she was so resilient that it was really uh, impressive to watch in the middle of all the uh, religious fervor and things mm. that were going on. Was she working there or was she being a, a stay-at-home mom? She was a teacher, actually. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, she taught English in, hmm. in Iran. And my, my my father was an attorney. And anyway, to make a long story short, the the war that happened soon after yeah. was uh, sort of like the sign where uh, my mother just didn't want me to be there anymore. And it was very trendy for people to come and get educated internationally and go back. I think a lot of people do that still to this day from India or China. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, but after that transformative upheaval, um, we basically moved to Virginia and did not go back. How did you choose Virginia? Did you have relatives there? Yes, we did. Uh-huh. Yes. So I had an uncle who was an orthopedic surgeon there. And uh, my grandmother, I think she must have read too many um, scarlet uh, Scarlet O'Hara novels. So she the was in Civil love. War, yeah. She was in love with the South, and uh-huh. that's where we ended up. Although we have family in New York and California as well. So when did you know that you wanted to be a doctor? Was it because it was in your family? So I did have some experience taking X-rays from my uncle on a summer. He was hmm. an orthopedic surgeon, and I was a little bit of an orthopedic patient very early on from uh, skateboarding and soccer. So I had like yeah. a broken bone here, torn up knees, etc. So I was always interested in how quickly can I recover and get back to my activity. And it's fascinating because when you're 18 and you have a knee scope, you're in physical therapy the next day and you're, you're back in your skateboard in two weeks. 
uh, that doesn't happen when you're my age now. <laughs> so that is sort of been a recurrent theme in my life. Like, how do you, you know, how do you get uh, back to your game, whatever your game is? Mm-hmm. And I and I've applied that in my practice as well as a neurosurgeon that I've been doing for 16, 18 years now. It's about uh, whatever your activity is. That's your athletic. That's your athletic goal. And anyone, I mean, life is motion. So even yes. if your athletic activity is daily walking. That's your athletic goal, and a goal of any medical intervention should um, at least honor that or have that as part of the overall goal of getting a patient back to their activity. Yeah. I always talk about having to make another comeback. You know, I was a competitive athlete, and it's like when you get hurt, I've got to make a comeback, and then you got to make another comeback. And even though I'm no longer an athlete, I'm still an athlete at heart, and no matter what happens, I have to make a comeback, and I know that's what you're experiencing with many of your patients. Absolutely. And it, I think the mindset of what you're describing, like your mindset is a great example of being, getting after it, no matter where, what stage of your evolution or life mm-hmm. is. I mean, you can be uh, at, at the very top, like what, what we see in Olympians, et cetera, where the, you know, it's like the, they're at the very tip of the razor's edge and yeah. they, I mean, looking at them, their bodies, their minds is a magnificent, coherent, coordinated effort. Uh, but I, I'd love to apply that mentality to the average citizen, the everyday patient, and get them motivated and inspired. And I, I see that in you, and I love it. <laughs> well, yeah, well, let's get back into your life now and say, where, where did you go do your undergraduate work? So I was actually in Virginia for that, uh, Old Dominion University. And um, it was uh, incredibly transformative for me. I had incredible professors. Um, what did you major in? Uh, biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did a, a honors uh, research in uh, neuroscience where we worked on olfaction, the sense of smell. Yeah. And that was like one of these uh, very interesting phylogenetic parallels where you look at the sense of smell as it's evolved from eons ago in say, small rodents to us who don't use it as much, but still absolutely uh, critical and, and fascinated by that. Let's break down the words for the listeners. Phylogenetic. Yeah. So basically how uh, different uh, different species mm-hmm. are categorized in a process called taxonomy. And so how different species biologically are categorized based on um, whether they're mammals or fish or it's warm-blooded or it's cold-blooded, cold-blooded and and then how, if you can make parallels between how they're categorized and the evolution of, say, their brain components. And certain nuclei uh, are developed as a result of evolution, and certain ones are kind of downgraded. And sense of smell has been one of those that in humans has been sort of downregulated as not as essential, let's say, vision. Yes, and dogs grew up, blew up big time. Right, and so that's fascinating because all of that is basically forms of energy by which you're interpreting your environment in. Mm -hmm. And what we see is sort of like a small portion of reality in, if if you really think about the amount of input and the potential interpretations that that you have. So we have some senses that we have uh, overdeveloped and some senses that could, we could utilize to, to maybe exploit them for healing and recovery. Okay, so you were learning about that in undergraduate school. Yes. And then you went to med school at Medical College of Virginia, which is the Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. Correct. So what was that like? So that's when I, that's, that was the first time I was exposed to uh, 
uh, neuroanatomy at a very deep level, and I absolutely fell in love with it. Mm. And uh, I believe I saw the uh, the third ventricle one day in the operating room and decided, you know, that's what I wanted to do. Despite the fact that I loved spine from early on, I just loved the way it moved, and so many parts have to coordinate together for motion of the spine. I was a surfer in Virginia Beach and seeing the <laughs> yeah. the sort of the whip of the body as it as it rides waves. I think it's it's a it's a spine sport basically. Let's go back and explain what the third ventricle is. So yeah, so um, I I was actually walked into the wrong operating room. I was I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon, and uh, my preceptor, uh, who is the head of foot and ankle society, who's an excellent doctor, Doctor Adelar was uh, performing a surgery, and I literally just walked into the operating room right next to it. There were two doors, easy to mix up. And there was this white glistening membrane on on the screen, and it was uh, inside the third ventricle of the brain, which is the very, very center of the brain. The deepest area. The, yeah, pretty much in the, between your eyeballs go back about uh-huh. five centimeters. Okay. And that uh, this glistening white membrane had a had a tiny vein on it, which is the septal vein, and I thought it was the eye or something like that. It just looked so surreal, uh-huh. it almost like something you'd see in a VR VR <laughs> video or something. And the nurse uh, kind of told me to be quiet, and I said, "Where are we?" And she says, "That's the third ventricle of the brain." And I was like, "How great would it be if I learned spine surgery alongside neuroanatomy?" And lo and behold, I mean, spinal neurosurgery was 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 at its birth then, but it's uh, it's really took hold after that, and I was, um, you know, fortunate enough to be part of that evolution. So you're saying that before that time period, when you were walking behind door one or door two, and right. you walked right. into your new career, right. that brain and spine were separate, pretty much. More separated than they are now. Mm-hmm. I mean, even now they're, uh, you know, when I went through my training program, even though we did spine from day one, it wasn't like uh, the, 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 the coolest surgeries were aneurysm, aneurysm clippings and supervascular surgery and arteriovenous malformations or complex tumors. Okay, so all of these things, would, if you wanted to define them uh, fairly simply for our listeners. Just more, more, uh, more intricate uh, brain surgeries yeah. were looked upon as the more technically demanding ones, and spine, in at least in neurosurgical training, was not looked upon as technically demanding. Hmm. Uh, the orthopedic surgeons had it right from the beginning. They learned how to, you know, they learned about bone healing, etc., and then they learned spine later as as they realized that the complexity of the spine compared to the other joints is much higher. Yeah. So then the two specialties sort of merged efforts because orthopedic orthopedic surgeons knew a lot about bone healing yeah. and how the mechanics worked and neurosurgeons knew a lot about nerves and the, the delicacy of the surgical technique that it takes to not damage nerves as you're dancing around them in the spine which is what's unique about spine so both both skill sets are absolutely critical uh, to doing spine surgery well and so that's why you many times will see an orthopedic spine surgeon and a neurosurgeon in the operating room together. And and that used to be almost uh, universal, and now you see it on I would say more complicated cases. Okay. Because the 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 people at the top of the field uh, of both training uh, paths uh, do very similar jobs on yeah. a daily basis. Well, that's a good explanation. I hadn't quite understood before. Thank you for that. 
Then you did your internship at Ohio State University Hospitals. The Ohio State University. The Ohio State. Okay. Well, I saw a picture of you on Instagram at a Buckeyes Rose Bowl, right? Yes. It's another truly transformative experience. I felt so fortunate to uh, match there, and I had the best time of my life in Columbus, where, um, you know, the weather can be uh, harsh at times, and I remember uh, cross-country skiing to the hospital one day. So uh, cer- certainly it, w- it was a fantastic opportunity, one of the best clinical programs and uh, really very patient centric as far as learning how to take care of patients very early on and making complex decisions in both the university hospital and the private hospitals. So uh, they had one of the, the, the highest amounts of funding for spinal cord injury. So we were exposed to that very early on, uh, as well as the 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 cohesive nature by which some of the preventative uh, medicine um, uh, organizations, such as Think First, which is about spinal cord injury, preventing spinal okay. cord injury, and uh, as well as some of the research that was coming out of the uh, military labs and Air Force. Sure. So we're exposed to a lot of different aspects of how the future of neuroscience will be shaped. So I was extremely fortunate to be there, and it was in the you know late '90s where you also had the start of the 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 World Wide Web and, mm-hmm. and the internet, and it, it felt like it was one of those like pinnacle moments in history. So cool that you were a part of that. Yes, uh-huh. indeed. So what about your residency and your fellowship? So the residency was also at Ohio State. Um, uh, some of the most, I would say, memorable moments were uh, learning pediatric neurosurgery, mm. which is, you know, very, very, uh, at times, emotionally taxing, especially pediatric brain tumors, but also extremely rewarding and extremely, uh, I would say, uh, technically demanding in, in some respects because of the size of the patients. But How young would you go, to babies? Yeah, to all the way to babies. Oh. Yeah, we actually uh, uh, published on some of the earliest work in um, Atlanta axial stability and whether the, the, the screws that we used in the adult world actually worked on those populations. And mm. we did some work on C2 fractures. Uh, cervical, uh, the second cervical. cervical se- mm-hmm. Second cervical vertebra. Mm-hmm fractures for that and then uh in addition to that uh how do they how does a baby get that during birth sometimes no this is all traumatic this is not this is like um i I think age i would say age uh two two ish it was Mm -hmm. post-traumatic mostly but there there are some um congenital variants as well like this this thing called ozodontoidium which is that's a mouthful it's a a mouthful and it 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 does uh pose a certain challenge as far as stability of the craniocervical junction is concerned so we basically demonstrated that you could use smaller screws after H2 and get get very good results with the same techniques and and I think that's when we really we really started this this whole path that I'm sure you've talked to many of your other uh, of my colleagues about about how to do minimally invasive surgery on on patients of all ages mm-hmm. 
And I think that's sort of been the trend. It is. And it started in the late 90s and tubular discectomies and microendoscopic discectomies were the very... Okay, you lost me now. Let's go back. <laughs> yeah. Tubular. So, tubular discectomies were, were just becoming uh, uh, an everyday thing when, when I was... What is it? So basically uh, performing, shaving the, the a disc fragment that's pressing on a nerve mm -hmm. through a minimally invasive approach or using a dilating tube instead of a traditional incision to get to the disc. So in a traditional incision, you uh, create an incision in the skin, you tease the muscle aside, you create an incision on the bone, or you cut the bone and you get to the disc. Mm -hmm. In this approach, you create an incision on the skin, and then you use serial dilation to land on the exact part of the bone that needs to be shaven for the discectomy. Serial meaning one time after another after another. Right. You're giving more dilation. How are you dilating it? Dilating it through a tube that's just a millimeter or two uh, bigger than the last. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, your incision still has to be, uh, it, it basically makes about half to three quarters less of an incision. Okay. So these are things you were learning in your... Training. Yes. Well, how, how long was your training total? Uh, I mean, it's 14 years of, of total, you know, including medical school. Uh, uh, and undergrad, mm -hmm. but I had an infolded fellowship. So at the time, this was allowed and sanctioned by um, by the American Board of Neurological Surgery. In which case, I ended up in Tampa, Florida, for a infolded spine fellowship. So the fellowship was infolded in with your a residency that, exactly. was, that was linked to. The other place, at, where, where would you do your residency? Ohio State. Ohio State. Also. So you were still at Ohio. So I was still at Ohio, Tampa, but I ended up going to Tampa for that infolded fellowship. Okay, so those um, two are somehow uh, affiliated. Well, they were. we had to uh, apply and go through an application process okay. for that where the board uh, allows that to be uh, um, uh, part of the educational path. Okay. So you got out of the cold. Exactly. <laughs> and learned some really complicated scoliosis surgery. Uh, at Tampa General Hospital, University of South Florida. And uh, that was another incredible experience where um, the most complicated surgeries uh, that I've yet to yet to come across have, were, were done, done there. And hmm. uh, it was uh, uh, incredibly educational. Yeah, interesting. You'll hear more of this conversation with Dr. Bookshore right after this. If you're in the market for a bike, you want to buy your bike from a shop that has great service. Bicycles need to be serviced and maintained on a regular basis for safety. You want a relationship you can count on with the shop where you buy your bike. Helen's cares as much about servicing your bike and keeping you safe as it does about the sale of a new bike. Their tune-up packages and excellent repair service will keep your bike in perfect working order. Go to HelenCycles.com. That's HelenCycles.com. We're back with neurosurgeon Dr. Bookshore. What brought you to California? When did you come here? Uh, you know, 9-11 happened, actually, mm. when I was a fellow. So, you know, after that, the, the country was undergoing a major transformation, and I had to sort of make a decision on which, which part of my family I was going to join. My mm. brother was in New York. My sister was in California. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be close to family after, you know, the, kind of like sensing the trauma of, of yeah. what the country was yeah. undergoing. Where were your parents at the time? Uh, Virginia, actually, okay. thankfully. Yeah. yeah, my parents were in Virginia. We actually had some distant uh, friends that lost relatives. Mm -hmm. And my brother's a New Yorker. So we, uh, you know, he, he was his account of that day and 
he him giving a ride to all these strangers to get yeah. them homes. It yeah. was really incredible. So after that, I I either wanted to be near him in New York or uh, in in California. Where does your sister live? Uh, Los Angeles, right mm -hmm. here. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's nice. That's convenient. Exactly. She has so, a family. You have yeah, she has a family. Nieces She's married. and nephews. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that, that's where I, it was a job opportunity that opened up. It was actually with the Kaiser Health System. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was um, wonderful because I got to come to sunny California. Were you in Hollywood or you were you in like the, what they actually, call it, Cadillac? I initiate, initially, it was at Woodland Hills. Okay. That's her flagship. And I was chief of neurosurgery there. Wow. Okay. And then that I... That wasn't on your... Online bio. <laughs> yeah. And then I got, and then I chose to go to uh, Hollywood, which is Kaiser Sunset, to yeah. do even more complicated work. So when you went, when you started off working in Woodland Hills, I guess that's why you have a connection to West Hills. Because it says right. that you work in both Santa Monica and West Hills Exactly. Now. I've had this, this constant connection to the Woodland Hills area, which uh, seems to be one of my, uh, one of my spots. So now there's a lot of interesting things that you've been on the cutting edge of, and I just want to go through one by one. Tell me about novella, brain spa. That's an amazing phrase. So having suffered from multiple orthopedic injuries myself, the last one being a major ankle dislocation, which happened during surfing, uh, after which I really took about a year to recover, even though I was you know, performing surgeries on a scooter and <laughs> things of that sort. I uh, I really got into this mindset that I need to I need to become a better integrative physician of helping my patients prepare for the surgery and get into that recovery mindset. And it took me six months to actually start actively recovering. So it was all this like this post-surgical zombie time uh. that I feel like I lost because uh, frankly I think I was depressed. Uh, it was just a downer to to be down and out as an athlete. Yeah, and as a surfer, you know, you get a lot of endorphins from just the environment that you're in. <laughs> so we um, love the ocean. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think that's when I actually I tried to teach myself how to meditate, and it was really really difficult. And then I thought, you know, here I am whining about a small ankle injury, where what I'm doing on a daily basis is brain and spine surgery. And I'm not helping my patients, or at least I'm not doing as good of a job as I could be, other than the technical aspects of the surgery, to really help them get into that recovery mindset. So after I realized how hard it is to meditate, if you're angry and difficult to recover, you can't meditate. It feels unpleasant. Yeah. Yeah. I decided to uh, focus my efforts in an idea that I had called the brain spa, where we, we help patients basically... Um, optimize their psychology as well as get into that recovery mindset uh and, and you do this before the surgery and after and, after. and we've had mm -hmm. some incredible results both before and after surgery can you give me an example of something that uh, sticks out in your mind yeah i mean so i at least two or three of my patients one of them uh was suffering from uh requiring uh, spine surgery that happened adjacent to a level that she had had operated on previously mm. by a very good surgeon. Yeah. And uh, she had a herniated disc below a previous uh, fusion construct, say, yeah. uh, meaning that she'd had a spinal stabilization before. And she was frustrated, justifiably so. And she was um, coming to me and saying, well, why did this happen? What can I do to avoid it? And she was in a terrible mindset. And I told her, you know, we need to shift this 
so you can have an optimal recovery. So you can get recovering as soon as possible. Obviously, the 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 poor me and why me and how did this happen? She it wasn't like she was doing anything athletic. Um, I think she was picking up groceries or something mm-hmm. like that when she, when when it happened. Regardless, she she we she went through six weeks of uh, just basic neurovella kind of relaxation meditation. We had some guided breath work, which mm-hmm. is basically like holotropic breath work. With holotropic holotropic breath work is basically almost like physiologic hyperventilation okay people that want to look it up can look up holotropic breath work and it's all over the internet that the the the, what's what separates us is we're doing it as a side to a a very active medical practice Mm -hmm. so i'm constantly supervising the patient's experiences and this is an individualized program it's not a group program as uh in you're, you're a master of group therapy. Uh, this is a very, very much one-on-one one thing, sure. which, which is kind of our sweet spot in saying, let's concentrate on just your recovery. And this patient, after after about just three weeks, she was ready for surgery. She mm-hmm. had a successful microdiscectomy. And then post-surgically, she's been one of the biggest advocates. And it was to a point that she brought her husband back, who's a... a CEO, a leader of a major corporation, and he thought it was useful in the way he was simply, um, he was interested in transformative leadership. He's still coming to the spa, and he thought that the mindset really is so applicable to to many other you know other subcategories where you need the 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 correct substrate to be going through your neurological system, which is basically budgeting your energy in your body. So let's talk about what a substrate is. Yeah, so if you think about it on a daily basis, the brain decides how much of the energy is going to go for movement and how much of it is going to go in your thoughts and your cognitive abilities. Mm -hmm. And if it decides that it wants to really spend 90% of it on something that you're anxious about or something that you're depressed about or something that stresses you or pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, pain is is the common denominator. If you of, focus on it. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. and, and frankly, if it decides that, then you have 10% of your overall available body energy to spend on, say, therapy, on, on physical movement, on walking. So you're, you're already at a major disadvantage for recovery. Yeah. So that that body budget thing fascinated me from very early on. Body budget. That's a phrase. Did you make that phrase up? I didn't know. I think I've read it in some scientific uh-huh. textbooks. So yeah, I like it, that one. Yeah. So that that's where that's where I I know and I'm I'm trying not to be too esoteric and I'm sorry if I am being, but basically that's where the whole thought comes from is can you do something to manage your body budget a little better and don't be so emotionally invested in the cognitive aspects of it. And free up the energy for therapeutic recovery. Yeah. Well, you're still on the cutting edge when you look at this next thing. All these things, I want to go through these. You're using, you're starting to do virtual consultations. So let me be clear on that. We have, we have only done that as a, as a test because as an actual consultation, uh, we, you know, we, we'd go through a lot more, you know, secure servers and HIPAA compliant type Mm -hmm. of technology, patient privacy laws, patient privacy laws. So Mm -hmm. that's really important. But 
uh, on the brain spa side, just for say therapeutic breath work, we have done virtual consultations where people can come into the virtual spa by using their virtual reality goggles. Um, from home? From home. Oh, that's Absolutely. cool. Yeah. Absolutely. And then they get a tour of the brain spa and then they do the breath work with the instructor. Oh, you are leading the way. Okay. Now, what about robotic surgery? Now, now I know that's being used a lot in knees. Yes. Tell me about it, its use in your world. So we finally have a spinal robot. It happens to be at West Hills Hospital, actually. It's the first spine robot used in L.A. County. Hmm. And That's really breaking news then. Incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been an incredible experience. Uh, I was the first to use it last year. And now we have quite a few cases under our belt. And it basically makes um, the fixation part of spinal fusion surgery, which we routinely do using many, many, many x-rays. Yeah. It makes that part robotically assisted, so it makes it more precise and less x-ray intense. Well, that saves the patient radiation. Less radiation. Yeah. Right. The patient yeah. gets a preoperative uh, CAT scan, uh, which many patients get anyway. And then during surgery, we just tell the robot where, uh, you know, we put a clamp on, let's say, part of the spine, the spinous process. And then we inform the robot of where we think that is, and it scans everything. And then if it mathematically matches up, we do get a single x-ray in surgery as well, two projections. Mm -hmm. And then it matches that information up with the preoperative CT. And if it has a really high fidelity, then it says you're, you're good to go. How many of these have you done so far in a year? Uh, I think we've, I th so I don't use it on routine cases. I only use it on uh, either what we call deformities or, or tumors or uh, reconstructive spine surgery over, say, three or four levels. And so I think we've done approximately 15 to 20. Yeah. Yeah. And you're the only one that's used it so far, or are there other so spine far. doctors? Uh, no, I, I think, well, there is, there is another doctor that's used it once. Yeah, and I think there is a learning curve with it. Uh, I think that's a really important part. And uh, from what I heard, the other doctor didn't have as 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 easy of a time. And I think it comes with, uh, just like any other technology, you have to get used to. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a there is there is a learning curve associated with all new technology, and that's quite expected. Yeah. Now you were talking about spinal fusions. Can you use it for artificial disc replacements? So artificial discs are currently placed uh, in the front of the spine mm -hmm. as opposed to the back of the spine. So all the spinal robots developed are developed for posterior fixation. Okay. I think the, the computer can, can account for an artificial disc if need be in its algorithm, but not it wouldn't aid you place one. Mm -hmm. But I think that's not that far Coming. In, the, in the future. Yeah. yeah. I think we're very close to that. What about 3D printing? You had that also. As, I see that as something else that's in your world. Yeah, so, yeah. So some of the newer spinal implants are basically being 3D printed. Uh, and I think initially it was uh, just to make them customizable and for, for manufacturing purposes. But there's also some great science behind... Uh, whether the surface topography of a spinal implant is um, a useful adjunct to help it become more biologically active. Okay, so the surface of the implant, you need it to be porous so that the bone can grow into it? Exactly. Yeah. Precisely. Okay. Precisely. And some of it has to do with pore size. Some of it has to do with, with uh, 
configuration, and some of it has to do with material. So uh, that's undergone quite a, a new, I would say, revolution, if not evolution, in spine uh, research as to, for, for a long time, we've been using peak implants, polyethyl ether ketone. Okay. And that was because it had the same elasticity as bone, supposedly. So the breakability point or the mm -hmm. modulus mm -hmm. was similar to bone. Um, whereas titanium implants, which were used prior to that, are supposed to be much harder. Mm -hmm. Now what they're doing is they're making titanium softer by making it porous and making it 3D printed in a way that structurally matches bone a little closer. Oh my goodness. And so they're 3D printing titanium? That's one of the one of the methods. So huh. there, there, there are many, many combinations. I mean, I've seen peak by itself. I've seen peak coated with titanium. I've seen, uh, and, and then the next generation, it might be peak coated with uh, bio, biologically active molecules like hydroxyapatite or things that bone really likes to go likes into. to grow into yeah yeah it's very exciting it's an ex very exciting time to be a, a neurosurgeon in spine well anything in technology right now and everything's exploding right one of the things that i saw on your website was a wonderful picture of you with a, a man some somewhere near your age maybe a little older and you guys are both smiling broadly and beneath it it said brain injury trauma he had been in a deep coma and you had had to do some surgeries and other treatments when someone's in a deep coma, what do you have to do to bring them back out of that? So if I recall correctly, that gentleman, I believe he was involved in a trauma uh, to the brain. Mm -hmm. So he had a massive hemorrhage mm -hmm. and we needed to evacuate the, the parts that we could. And we needed to make a judgment to not evacuate the parts that maybe have just a bruise inside the brain itself. Now, when you say evacuate, do you mean just bring the ble the bleeding out, or do you mean some exactly. of the tissue out? The bleeding out. Just the bleeding out. Okay. It, it's the, so the ideal goal is to evacuate uh, what hemorrhage is outside the brain substance. Mm -hmm. Let's say in the subdural space, or even in the intracranial space. I think in his case it was mostly subdural. Which is the dermis, which is the, which is the lining the... underneath the lining of the brain mm -hmm. on the surface of the brain. Yeah. And um, and then we had to make a judgment call on the rest of it. And I think the rest of it we elected not to touch because it was able to heal itself even though it's bruised brain. Yeah. And he was perfect, which was the, you know, which is the most gratifying thing. I mean, that's what's unique about um, my job as a spinal neurosurgeon. If you're taking call for a hospital facility, you may be asked to do some brain surgery which I still do once in a while and I love. And that's where, you know, that's where the, the gratification is on a, on a completely different dimension. Off the charts. Right. Yeah. Now you're already doing so many futuristic things, but do you have anything on your radar that you see coming in the future? Absolutely. I mean, I think the use of, say, virtual reality for surgical instruction, simulation, better patient education, and also even, uh, I would say, meditation. There's something we're working on very briefly, actually, with, with some of our colleagues into exploring uh, avatars uh -huh. in the healthcare delivery. So and, we'd create an avatar for ourselves and we'd right. watch ourselves doing things with right. VR goggles? That's a lot, a lot of conversation uh -huh. around that, uh -huh. exactly, as well as instructionally under interacting with the avatar of an instructor in say therapy any kind of therapy 
And uh, that's a very exciting arena and the fidelity of that signal and what you consider, uh, I would say, healthcare grade is something that's exciting to see coming coming to fruition, which is, you know, it's basically like um, the the TVs of the, the, the 50s versus the TVs of today, you know, it's sort of like... <laughs> a little green eight-inch thing exactly. in black and white, but we call it sort of green and white. <laughs> right. So it's, it's, it's exciting to see uh, that happen. Yeah. Full color, high def, <laughs> right. everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, you are doing such a wonderful job here creating new things living them every day. And I want to thank you for taking so much time to speak with me on Meet the Doctors. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Dr. Amir Bookshur of Neuravella Brain Spa in Santa Monica. If you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode as we speak with the brightest minds in medicine, research, surgery, and much, much more. I'm Linda Huey. You can tweet to me on Twitter at Linda Huey. That's L-Y-N-D-A-H-U-E-Y. Say hi or tell me who you'd like to hear on Meet the Doctors. Thanks to production assistant James Cowan and to Tom Struther for audio post-production.